Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett, and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at phoebe.substack.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the journalist and editor Olivia Singer. Since getting her start in fashion features at another magazine, Olivia has risen the ranks of British star media. Going on to work as fashion news director at British Vogue before assuming her current title as global editorial director of ID magazine. In an extremely noisy media landscape, Olivia possesses a clear, unique voice that manages to rise above the din, and she has the distinct monochromatic uniform to match. I like Olivia because she takes her job seriously, but not herself, and she has intelligent opinions on everything from feminism to fashion resale sites, as you'll hear in the conversation that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Olivia. I love that you're lighting a cigarette as <laughs> as we commence. Very on brand. Perfect. How are you? Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, I've not given up smoking. I mean, I wouldn't expect you to. No. Um, yeah, I, I think it's probably the worst thing about when I'm on, like when I'm working from home or when I'm doing Zooms, I I smoke constantly. At least at Do the you office. Intend- you don't vape? No. No, that's not chic, vapes. <laughs> Vaping <laughs> is not chic. <laughs> the day I see you with a vape. Sorry, say that again. I do in the cinema sometimes, but the vapes hurt my chest. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're lethal. We're, we're going to find out really bad things about those in a few years, yeah. for sure. Exactly. Um, yeah. Did you have, so no, no resolution to stop smoking. Did you have any other um, New Year's resolutions? No. No, I didn't. Not that. I, uh, no, I mean, no. Just try and get through this. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No, just just to know from Bolivia. Just no. I do feel that we've got to a point in humanity where setting a New Year's resolution just feels delusional. Like, just get through, as you said. If you can make it through the year, like in one piece, exactly, you're That's doing better than a lot of people. It's more than enough. I feel like I'm in. You know, I have enough therapeutic goals to not be setting any any additionals. <laughs> Fair play. Um, but how are you feeling about the start of this year? How are you feeling about life? How are you feeling about work? Yeah, the state I'm, of the world I'm, is not hope, this, hopeful. But... The world is a fucking state. Um, I am feeling positive about 2024. Um, I like a new year. I mean, I was exhausted mm. at the end of last year. And I had the most peaceful break conceivable. And I like, yeah, I like a new year. I like a an excuse for like a new energy, a new chapter, a new back to school. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward. I feel like yeah. the year properly starts for me when I go to Paris in a week and a mm. half. I um, and then the first few months of the year are always really back to back for me with travel. Right. And I, because I had my injury last summer, I haven't traveled since. Oh, August. you poor thing. Um, 
And so I'm looking forward to like trying to get, I started leaving the house again in December and I'm looking forward to sort of getting out of the bubble that I've been in for the past few months because I've just been at home resting and trying to recover. So Mm. yeah, I'm looking forward to like getting out and about again. Otherwise I just become so insular and I just sit and like watch TV all day. So it'll be good to get out of the house. (laughs) Which is quite, you know, at odds of my personal experience of you anyway, because obviously, you know, you, you are, I think you're a very social person as well. And you, you seem to thrive in a certain type type of social environment. I'm sure you don't like all of them who does, but you're, you're out in the world kind of, kind of woman. I think I'm like a two extremes. So either I'm Mm. very out in the world and doing Mm. lots of things and I'm like out back to back and traveling back to back or I'm just at home on my sofa and like people come around a full and, recluse. and that's and mm. um, yeah it's it's like one or the other there's no I've got I've not mastered the art of balance in my life um so yes yeah, it's, it's one or the other and so I've been in like one stage for the past few months and then mm. from going to Paris onwards um I'll be in the other stage so it'll be nice to switch up I think I look a lot more social than I am. The many myths that social media propagates, right? Like you post a few photos a few times a year and everyone's like, that girl's never at home. (laughs) (laughs) But like people used to say to me, you're always on holiday. And like, I'm not going to lie. I've traveled a lot in my life, but I was like, I'm really not. I just, I totally understand what it looks like I am. Like I, I, you know, because I used to only post when I was traveling and then people just get that impression of you. But of course, as you said, you know, it's your job to travel. I mean, prior to your current, your literal job title is, is it global editorial director or editorial global director? I don't know which way around the words go. I mean, the key, the clue is in the name, right? It's, it's global. It's global. global. (laughs) I get to travel. I get to see the world. I get to see people all over the world and you know I've got friends all over the shop so I yeah I get to travel which I which I really miss. Where as a global editorial director are you kind of excited or inspired or intrigued by what's unfolding culturally in the world? Where am I? I'm really interested in what's happening in South Africa culturally. Um, I haven't spent I've only been there briefly. I was talking about it yesterday to one of my friends who's out there at the moment. Um, so I'd really like to spend, I'd really like to spend some time in South Africa this year. Um, yeah. I think that's on my, on my list of places that I want to go. I mean, mm. I think with, with what's unfolded globally over the past few months, I mean, what I really mm. wanted to do this year was, go and see some friends who are working in work, working in Gaza. Um, And that's no longer possible. Um, Because Mm -hmm. I think there have been some really incredible movements of young people and young creatives um, working between Israel and Palestine um, without Mm. to turn this into a conversation about about that, but that was what I was really that was what I was really hopeful to do this year because I think there are some incredible mm. moves of, of people doing some incredibly creative things there. Um so I guess I will find I guess South Africa this year. I'm really interested to yeah. see 
what young people are doing there. And I've um I wanted to go see my friend Tebe, who's got a studio out there, who we did some projects with last year. Um and mm. I'm really interested in people who are setting up who are setting up sort of fashion communities which have a global reach and a global retail reach um but aren't relocating to Europe or America. Um, mm-hmm. so structures in new places um like how kenneth was setting up factory kenneth Ize was setting up factories in in illerin in northern nigeria how tebe is like keeping a lot of his production in and around johannesburg I, i'm really interested in seeing some more of that this year yeah i mean obviously the sort of you know the industry still the well the fashion industry at least is still very much located in sort of the Western world, but it doesn't feel like necessarily the creative force behind it is coming from Europe in the way that it was at a certain time, or or maybe just the trickle down comes from a different place, or the inspiration is more exciting in in different parts of the world, even if the big fashion houses are still here. I'm I'm not like super well versed on on the global movements of the fashion industry, but it certainly doesn't feel like London, Paris, New York are particularly exciting hubs for street style, just from my eye. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what's really interesting is in other in other non-Western countries, um, people are setting up their business models differently by virtue of being excluded mm. from the Western fashion industry. And young mm. designers now who I think are thriving are the people who have set up their business models differently because it's such an unbelievably difficult time to be to be a young designer or to be any designer right now in the in the current climate mm. or, or maybe perhaps any kind of creative yes but I think fashion particularly is, is undergoing a like particularly ropey period um, in terms of business and so people who have set up like direct-to-consumer um direct-to-consumer communities who support them in other parts mm. of the world, I think are sort of uniquely positioned to really thrive. And that yeah. goes well with supply chains. I mean, I always think it's kind of boring to people when I start talking about that stuff. But um, I think that because people are forced to, to operate, to set up business models differently in other parts of the world, mm. that's one of the that allows for really exciting innovation in fashion for young designers right now. So I'm always really interested mm. to see that. And I agree with with street style. Um, I mean, one of the things that I love most that we do at ID is like, we, you know, the, the straight up that's been in ID mm-hmm. since you know, time in memoriam issue one. The subject um, of my um, A-level photography project, I'll have you know. No way. Level. <laughs> no yeah. way. That's so mega. Yeah. Um, yeah and so we do those like all over the world right we do them at like whether mm. it's like on a del rey's bible belt tour or whether it's uh Areti's street suit stuff in in lagos um and you definitely see more interesting street style outside of outside of certainly the fashion capitals at the moment yeah um i've touched on the straight up before on this podcast i can't remember who i was talking to but obviously you know i'm interested in it and having <laughs> having chosen it as the subject of my a-level uh, photography so <laughs> project but i think people don't really understand like i mean id's been phenomenally 
influential publication on a lot of levels. But if you were maybe to extract one thing, the, the fact that it was like filling its pages with quote unquote normal people in an age so that so predates social media, let alone influencers, and now sort of quote unquote normal people taking photos of their personal style is a massive global economy. Yeah. It's just such an interesting lineage to me to just think about how that tracks, you know, before ID, there wasn't really, to my knowledge, any publications at all that were saying the way that people dress on the street in real life is just as, if not more interesting than anything you're ever going to see on a catwalk. Yes, I, I agree. And it's like one of the things that I have always loved most about ID and, and certainly now is that it explores style and and the impact of style and personal style and the expression of personal style um mm. above all else and i above you know a look that is assembled for a runway or or whatever i think the commodification obviously of of personal style is like a really curious thing to witness it's like how you you know there's that thing that like the, the half tucked shirt that I remember like five years ago or years ago or something. <laughs> it was like every I just remember like all like all the glossy magazines were like the fashion set is half tucking their shirts. And I'm like, mm-hmm. who who in this world is managing to maintain such a meticulous approach to how they're getting dressed in the morning that they are being like, mm. okay, and then I'll hold my shirt um, because X magazine told me to. Like just the shit. And I, there have been periods in my life when I'm like, oh, am I fucking up? Like I never look, you know, I go to, I'm always at a fucking fashion week and I always worry, like I'm, I'm not very pristine in how I dress and everything like is always like a bit crumpled or a bit dirty or whatever. Well, well Olivia, okay, let's um, let's interject for people who might not have seen what you look like. You've got an incredibly strong and distinctive look and yes, I wouldn't never, say dis- dishevelled like, is, is part of it. But I, I'd say but immaculate I, is the vibe. Thank you, I appreciate that. But, um, but you know, like, my, my trousers are never, like, properly hemmed and, like, my, I think you have to, like... Right. I never have like my shoes are never polished, my trousers are never hemmed. There's always like a button that's fallen off something. I'm not someone who's like very good at um at like being pristine, I guess is what I mean. And then, well, that's like, the then beauty of wearing all black, no? Exactly, exactly. The beauty of wearing all black is that stuff is far less visible. And it's the same with always wearing like mm-hmm. tight clothes, bodycon is that you can't see creases and mm-hmm. um, I always travel with a like a personal steamer, like a little a little handheld mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. That I can steam stuff so it looks like less. I mean, once you do that, everything looks like very fresh and nice. Um, but I have gone through like phases in my life where I'm like, shit, do I need to like, I don't know, polish my shoes more or whatever? And then I can't, I literally can't. <laughs> I like, can't be that person who gets up in the morning with enough time to do it. And I am very impressed by the people who, for whom that's like second nature. Um, and so I, it blows my mind that one could be like, 
okay, I will half tuck my shirt because I can't even mm. get to the polishing my shoe. But so as long as I've known you, which is not that long, but a, a few years, um, you've mm-hmm. had the look that you have now, which as you know, as anyone who looks at your Instagram can see quite quickly is, you know, your distinctive black bob and, and your all black outfits and a lot of Rick Owens and a lot of, you know, your like you say, a lot of bodycon yeah. and a lot of fab heels. No one's going to see you in athleisure anytime soon. <laughs> um or maybe like a black spandex bodysuit or something to do some ballet. I can't imagine you wearing a grey mole. But um, how how long have you been dressing in this way? And and what how did it just sort of? Did you wake up one day and go, "I just need a uniform"? No, I think it sort of evolved. Um, I think I don't. I think it evolved. I've always worn a lot of black. I've always been pretty like gothy vibes, I guess. Um, but I think it, it literally just evolved. Like I buy, or I, I don't really now, but I would buy colourful things sometimes and then I just wouldn't wear them. And I think mm. it's it certainly wasn't a conscious decision, um, but it is how I feel most comfortable. And I think part of that mm. is like a self-confidence thing. You know, I have myriad uh, hang-ups about my body, as I think you know most people in this world can relate to. Um, and black, I think, allows you to like fade into the background a bit sometimes but also stand out a bit sometimes Mm. um I think in terms of clothing it's really interesting because it it means that you focus on cut and fabric um rather Mm -hmm. than anything else and I'm really obsessed with with cut um that, I mean, I think that's why I love Rick Owens so much. Like his pattern cutting is, I and mean, he was a pattern cutter back in the day. And I think his mm. the way he cuts for, for bodies is is incredible. Um, mm. I think it's easy, like you said, like I well, like I was just saying. Um, I'm not very organized when I do things like packing. Like I packing is my least favorite thing in the entire world. I don't like mm. an outfit like that and everything matches if it's black so it's very easy I Mm -hmm. no one really notices if you wear the same thing again and again I think part of it's practical and then part of it's just ended up being yeah because I like it aesthetically but it certainly wasn't yeah and uh, I'm gonna make a brand I'm gonna (laughs) but I think I've worn a lot of bodycon I've always worn a lot of black um like I look Mm -hmm. back at photos when I was younger and that was certainly the vibe I was going for. That five years old, five years old in a black bodycon. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. Um, I used to get my mum to cut up to cut up swimsuits for me and sew them together so I could have like a body black bodycon like posh vibes. Like, I, wow, really? Like she when I was growing like, up, she for real, for real, five years old in a black bodycon. Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you'll have to dig those photos out. I think also, I mean, you know, you spend a lot of time around people who kind of live and breathe fashion. I know a lot of people who live and breathe fashion and they look incredible. But one thing you quite quickly learn being around people like that is it's really fucking time consuming. It's not, they don't just roll out of bed. Like they're spending hours getting ready for things. They're spending days hunting down the outfits. They've often got people helping them if they're really serious. Like it's not just, that's the, that's why I've never really let, like leaned into being a, a fashion girly because I'm like, oh, I just I, I don't care enough, and this is this is time consuming. These people are committed. 
they're really yes. committed. I mean, that's discounting the shopping, which is, <laughs> you know, a, yes, a exactly. considerable pursuit. It's, yeah, it's, it is. It's super time consuming. And I love getting dressed and I love getting ready. Um, but there are not enough hours in the day. And how do you feel about what's your relationship like with consumption and from what I understand, you didn't kind of get into doing what you're doing because you're, you're addicted to shopping. I love, I'm a big shopper. Like, I love shopping. Okay. It's and how do you reconcile that with any sort of, uh, if you have any sort of environmental or sort of hesitancies, or do you, is it just a separate part of your brain? I very much subscribe to the Westwood buy better, buy less philosophy. Like mm-hmm. if you buy, I mean, I'm in a fortunate position now where like, you know, I make decent money and I can buy stuff that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is well-made and that will last. Um, I, I'm not like a trendy shopper. Um, I don't buy like, mm-hmm. trendy stuff. Um, I really believe that like the clothes I buy will last me. And mm. that for me is the best way of shopping sustainably. I also buy a, like, I buy a mm. lot of vintage, um, not like, not like vintage. Like, I mean, again, I wish I was one of the people with the patience in this world to have 4,000 Vestia notifications set up. I get a lot of my alaya on the real real. Um, and so I buy a lot of, I buy a lot of vintage, but not like, I'm buying John Galliano Autumn Winter 2002 vintage. You know, I'm like, okay, black alaya dress, mm. real, real. It's mysterious season. I mean, at least like- you've got an inbuilt filter for online shopping because yes. I think yeah. for a lot of people who can't, who have a, a shopping addiction, which is, pro- I'd say, a lot, you know, many more people than would care to admit, the sheer amount of stuff to wade through is yes. you know yeah and it's literally my enough to make you want to give up and yet you don't yeah but you like you say you know you're looking for a black alaya dress you're looking for a rick owens corset you're looking for a you know like there's a, a bunch of things i'm sure you just search for and you find like new iterations of the best of it exactly and like i think yeah that's literally because it's my job to know like where i have the best of that stuff or or whatever um but yeah i do like i really like shopping i also love the feeling of shopping i love that i make my own money and i can go into a shop and buy something for myself that is expensive Mm. and that i have earned like that feeling for me is still something that is really powerful and magnetic like Mm. it makes feel like I mean I hate the word empowered but it does make me feel empowered I guess like yeah I've earned this money I'm spending it on an expensive handbag that I want great Mm -hmm. I feel no guilt yeah but from what I've read of you you there's not a huge amount of information about you online but um from the interviews that I've read your kind of entry point to what you're doing in your career was not really fashion per se you weren't drawn to working in the industry that you're in because you're obsessed with clothes what what would you say it was that kind of drew you in I um yeah I mean I didn't grow up reading fashion magazines or anything um or any magazines really um I definitely wasn't someone who had 
a goal to work in fashion or even thought of it. It wasn't like I knew it was a thing that, and I had chosen not to work in it. I just mm. never cons- like engaged with it. You know, I grew up in clubs in London and um, everyone was like a musician or worked in music and that wasn't what I was going to do. And I don't really think I had any, I didn't really have ever any sort of career aspirations for myself. And then at all, no, no, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And then, um, I ended up thinking that I wanted to work in, I mean, I went to university, um, and I studied English literature with, in Manchester with a feminist focus. And like, I, I went to Manchester cause I was super into uh, like Marxist feminism and Terry Eagleton and Sheila Robotham both lectured there then. And I had a boyfriend who was like, I know, dramatically older than me and uh, a big socialist. And um, I, so I ended up there and I got really into Marxist feminism, socialist feminism. And so I moved to Paris after university with like the vague, the vague inclination of learning French so that I could study French feminism. And I wanted to like, uh, I mean, not to get too miserably deconstructive about it, but like Hélène Secou and like deconstructivist, like academia, I guess. And mm. I thought... You had intellectual ambitions. I, yes, exactly. And I was like, oh my God, left bank Paris is going to be the place that that I find that. So I got like a few hundred quid for a Euro star and I moved to Paris and I got to Paris and I was like, oh wait, um, this isn't necessarily what Paris is like. Um, <laughs> and so I spent a couple of years in Paris or like just under two years in Paris. And I worked in, I worked in a kitchen and I set up some feminists and like intersectional feminist groups um, there. And tried to like you know got a boyfriend who was a poet and tried to live my liberal fantasy of like some yeah utopic feminist thing and it didn't really work out apparent france was incredible i mean it's still incredibly conservative but it was going through an incredibly conservative period then um particularly mm. it was like when they brought barker for the first time that was when i was living there and <laughs> The feminist movement there was super, super aggressive and super second wave. And um, I sort of just gave up. I wanted, so I came back to London with, and I wasn't very well for a bit. And I wanted to work in, in like uh, feminist activism then. Cause I was like, okay, academia feels very remote. Um, I didn't learn good enough French to be able to read anything anyway. So I was like, okay, I'll work in some sort of feminist activism. Maybe I'll work in rape crisis. I trained for a little bit. I couldn't do it. I think you have to be, I think the people who are able to do that are incredible people. And it wasn't me then. Um, so I sort of just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But I had started, mm-hmm. um, I had started working. I worked for a, a year in a kitchen. And then I learned enough French to get a job in a vintage clothes shop. Um, and. I got really interested in, we would buy vintage clothes um, and sometimes we would buy up dead women's wardrobes. Like you'd like go through, like someone died and you would go through their stuff and, and buy it. Um, mm. I got really in, 
reflected in how that reflected women's bodies and I don't know women's lives through their wardrobes like I remember there was one woman uh, she was called like Madame Curie and you could see you know in the 40s her tab shorts she would model and so the clothes that she would wear to go to fittings and then she became a travel journalist and you could find her like her caftans from when she was traveling around the world and then as she became like a lady in Paris she was buying Chanel suits and you could literally see her like life and her body changing over the years mm. through this wardrobe and I thought that was so interesting and I'd always been into like looking nice um which was something yeah. that I found like often dissonant with with the feminist circles I was engaged in sometimes like you know if you got like a second wavy feminist gang they weren't you know, I got, I used to get like shade for the way that I dressed sometimes um, from a different generation of women who didn't see the way that I dressed as furthering the movement. Um, mm. So I started to get interested in this idea of how women dressed and I came back to London, didn't know what I wanted to do, you know, did all sorts of random stuff. I had some friends who worked in fashion and things. Um, but I, yeah, I was just pretty aimless. And then I snuck into a, uh, into a fashion show with a friend of mine, just because I had nothing to do. And it was a Medium Kirchhoff show. And it was so mega. Um, and I was like in however many minutes a runway show is, like seven minutes or something. Um, I was like, oh my, it was like this feminist it was very like riot girly feminism, which I was very into, and, mm. like made manifest on a runway in a really interesting way that I was just super excited by. I didn't know that fashion could do that, could reflect all the things that I was interested in, in such a like singular mm. moment. And I bumped into Isabella Burley, who was then the fashion features editor at Dazed. And I'd known from growing up in like clubs in London. And, mm -hmm. and I was so psyched. And she was like, oh, well, why don't you write something about it for us? And I did. And I'd, I'd written, I'd always written like feminist stuff for places, like not like for journals or whatever, or blogs. or So I wrote something about fashion for, for fashion feminism, medium, for for dazed and then I guess it just like opened a window of having conversations about feminism through through a softer lens almost or a more mm. accessible lens, or like more broadly culturally resonant lens than the academia that like I'd been caught up in for a very long time and that was really exciting to me I started writing a lot of beauty stuff as well I was really interested I've always been really interested in beauty um, mm. industry and so I started writing for a lot of websites beauty websites um, like Into the Gloss and, and places like that um, Exo Jane back then um, about beauty and I like you know I, I pitched Zing Tseng who was then the I think the editor of Wonderland um, you know yeah. I found her email online and I pitched her like a column about cultural like my feminist icons and their beauty routines so like I think we did like Lydia Lunch and we did Stoya back when she was still doing sex work and we did oh my gosh Shirley Manson 
which was such a dream. Mm. And like speaking to all these different women about how beauty, beauty um, informed, I know, their, their ways of self-presentation and things like that. So I got into writing about mm-hmm. beauty and then and feminism and blah, blah, blah. And then I think it was before feminism became such a like, cultural touchstone in fashion so I think I it was quite good for me Mm. that then like if you needed someone to write about feminism you could ask me and I would do something about feminism um and then I got offered a job at another like very fortuitously as a fashion writer and I didn't have a job and I was like oh my god major and so I got this job at another and I was paid like literally I, I mean, what was it? I was, I found my contract in COVID. I think I was paid 500 pounds a month for three and a half days a week. And I worked wow. the other three and a half days in a shop or in like other random places. And I was just so psyched to have a job that was like mm. a grown up job. And as soon as I started working there, I loved it so much that I was like, okay, I found my job. Mm. People were amazing. It was like, I'd been invited into this world where I could write whatever I wanted and have access to all of these mm. incredible people I could interview. And I could ask them anything about fashion, about culture, about creativity, about whatever, and like draw on their knowledge and draw on their understanding of things and and just hear hear their stories and then like reflect those stories or tell those stories. And the people who I worked with just were a dream. Like Susanna Frankel was really instrumental to, I don't know, she was just like, the, she is still um, the like kindest and most like informed woman. And she was so encouraging of me. And so was Jefferson. And so was um, the women like Agatha and Nell, who I worked with, Laura Bradley, who was then the digital editor, who was amazing to me. And I just couldn't believe that, like, even if they were paying me one pound, I had this job. So I just... How long worked. ago was this? Like a decade or, or more? Yeah, a decade. I think a decade. Um, yeah. Because and- I think that really, your depiction of that time, I can... I mean, I, I've never worked... I've never had a staff job at a magazine, but obviously I've done quite a bit of freelance journalism in my earlier 20s. And I, I remember feeling like magazines were places that really drew all these incredible people that I wanted to be around as well it just I feel like it's pertinent to this what you were saying about how you only got paid 500 pounds a month for three days a week and da 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 which I suppose when you're in your early 20s you can figure out wait (laughs) 3.5 sorry (laughs) um still a questionable amount of money I'd say Um, and I, I also wrote for Dazed at that time and got paid extremely questionable amounts of money. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I was super young and somehow made it work and life wasn't expensive. And I read something that you'd said in an interview not that long ago about how, like, you know, there might be some people listening to this now who are, you know, interested in your career trajectory and want to do what you're doing. And you said, like, the thing that people need to know is that there's no money in editorial. Um, yeah. And I and I just thought, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much money there's in it now, but like then there was no money in it. And I just yeah. think somehow it was doable if you, because London was cheaper. So you could yeah. just about figure it out. And now, now it, now it isn't, I guess my point or my question to you is like, how, 
these kind of people won't be drawn to media in the way that they were at that time. I, I assume that it's not, it's not feasible. I agree. And it, I think that's, I think that's a massive problem. I think it's a massive problem in fashion journalism, in fashion journalism, because I, there are less people who want to become fashion journalists than literally any other part of this industry, it seems. Because it's like the least, like mm. the least bit, right? It's the least visible bit. It's the least like, it's also the mm. least lucrative. Like straight up, if you work mm. as a stylist, you're going to be richer than as a fashion journalist. And I think it's right. really tough that it pays so little. I didn't have any other I was I was really blessed in the fact that I had a housing association flat. So I had fixed rent. Right. Um, Good. Which yeah. is a massive part of what allowed me to be able to work for five hundred pounds a month living in London. And I, I would work the mm-hmm. other three and a half days. You know, I didn't do anything apart from work for years. Um but I did have that fixed rent and I, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it makes me incredibly sad that affordable housing is no longer available to literally anyone. Um, I, I think I'm really transparent with people about money all the time because mm. of that. Uh, I always say to people who are looking to get into editorial that you cannot rely on freelance editorial rates to pay your bills. What I have always done and what I I pick up very quickly was working in uh, branded editorial, like so working for brands and whether that was writing their press Mm. releases or writing their Instagram captions or writing anything um, for brands, Mm. that was what paid my bills. So I soon managed to stop working in shops and started managing to work for random brands i mean i worked for like this beauty this beauty investment firm in america for years um doing copywriting for their their acquisitions i worked for e-commerce places doing product Mm. descriptions for them so i would do all of that stuff to like pay my rent and pay my food and then use Mm -hmm. editorial i guess my magazine job to i guess my magazine job to I don't know, do, do what I wanted to do, um, which, you know, isn't great. But I, I think it's really important to be honest about that stuff to people so they know what they're getting into and, and how, I don't know, ideally a job actually pays you a living wage, you know. And when I left, I did yeah. end up, I mean, not getting paid more than, more than that at another. But it was still like, I don't even know if it would have made London living wage. And then by the time I moved to Vogue, I was still earning an incredibly low salary. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, incredibly low. Like I was working, working at Vogue, not making much money. And again, I it was the it was the work that I did for brands um, on the side mm. that actually paid my rent. Do you still work um, with brands? If you don't mind me asking, and feel free not yeah, to answer that if you don't want I to. Do. I actually I love working yeah. with brands. I only work with a few now, but I I still do, and I love it. I think that. It allows you an understanding of the industry from the other side, which is really interesting to me. And it allows are you, you consulting now more, or is it is it still? Yeah, I assume. Yeah, I consult. Yeah. And I also write. I do like storytelling. I do editorial, creative consultancy. Yeah. I do. You know, I I do all sorts. Um, but I so yeah, it's still I a lot of work. <laughs> I love. I mean, I think the thing is, I love working. I love my job, and right. I feel really. Yeah. 
my job is so interlinked with with what I love in this world and what I love to do and and I feel you know very very blessed that that's the case and you seem like someone who's got a very um active mind and I can't imagine that sort of beyond zoning out to a bit of tv every now and then it's particularly pleasurable for you to just switch off you know I think some people need it more than others there's obviously a big sort of cultural narrative right now around rest and sort of resisting capitalist productivity metrics which is valid and and useful but it's not for everyone (laughs) no and I'm actually super big into rest and like and recuperation and all of those things like I really really am um but like I said Mm. I'm all or nothing and if I'm working, then I just really want to be working loads and I really like my job. So I'm happy mm. to like work a lot. It's a, it's a hard industry what? and work a lot. So you, what, your job now, what, is so, what does it, you know, you've got a, an amazing job title, but a lot of people probably wouldn't understand what it entails. I assume you're not doing quite as much writing as you used to. What kind no. of, what does your job comprise of now? So I work really closely with Alistair uh, McKim, the editor-in-chief, um, mm-hmm. on making the mm-hmm. Um So working with him to, I don't know, whatever it takes to make a magazine, uh, commissioning, yeah. editing, thinking of things, uh, production. I'm very, like, hands-on. I like to be involved in everything. Um, I'm also very involved in like the commercial side of of the business and understanding like and building our commercial relationships to support what we want to do i also um, Mm -hmm. oversee all of the rest of the stuff we do our id so uh, our digital offering like video social um i work with all of our teams to make sure that like everything connects and Mm. is moving forwards and to make sure that like every avenue whether it's like an event we're doing in Coachella or a party in London or whatever uh, reflects the ID vision and I find it really hard to express what it is I do um, because I guess it's a bit of everything Um, Mm -hmm. I also, I just like to know what's going on in all parts of everything. I mean, that's something that I really learned, I think, at Vogue, is how much I like being across all sorts of different arenas of of a company, of a brand, of a magazine or whatever. Um, and so I guess just like overseeing everything, making sure everything's good, making sure everything's aligned, coming up with ideas, helping get those ideas into action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think is the role of, because, uh, you know, ID is not, it's not just a magazine. It hasn't been for a long time. It's a brand in, in many senses, just like so many um, editorial platforms have become out of necessity and, you know, out of aspiration to reach more sectors of culture. You know, I don't know. It, it seems to me almost possible to distinguish now between social media and marketing and, and editorial. And it's so much, it's all like we were saying, even with fashion, it's all just very meta and very merged. And yeah. what, what role does a, does a magazine like ID play in culture now, do you think? 
or a title or a brand I, like ID? I mean, I hope that we like offer a window into, I hope we offer a window for our audience into the worlds that we think are exciting and like culturally relevant, culturally exciting and and tell the stories of, of people and brands and musicians and creatives of all disciplines and open up offer a window into accessing those worlds as well as sort of mm. culturally exciting things happening across the globe um which means that we have to find those things um which is a responsibility um mm. yeah i hope we're offer i hope we're platforming i think our general vibe is like platform the stuff that we love and mm. hope people like it and they, and it, it's it's yeah. I mean it's it's not more it's not any more meticulously considered than that. It's like all the team talks about what we're into, and then we put it in a magazine or on a website or on Instagram or or whatever. And mm. and that's always been the spirit of ID. It's a DIY sort of just like organic. That's the core of yeah. You know, at least my understanding of what what it's about. Yeah, and it's not any. It's not any more like there's not any more of a like rigorous strategy behind it than that yeah it's just yeah stuff everyone on the team thinks is great and then we and then we champion it and hope for the best (laughs) (laughs) hoping for the best just like we are in 2024 yeah i mean i think you know on one level you could say that these editorial platforms uh, to some extent, you could make an argument they've become redundant, but equally, you could make a, a case that they're more important and powerful than ever because we need we need that curatorial lens on culture now that it's so much noise. There's just so much noise. Right. Exactly. And hopefully, like, magazines uh, offer a, way, a means of cutting through that and, and distilling that into something mm. that is more consumable than an infinite scroll right 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 i mean you seem quite um again i'm just making so many assumptions about you based on your instagram you seem like you're quite online which obviously makes sense given your job you have to be online all the time does it but you also strike me i i don't feel like you're someone who's particularly anguished about it like it like it's just another part of you just being you and taking it all in and then that's that you're not like troubled by being on instagram or whatever i love how much you post it's very like oh, thank you. Or, again it's organic <laughs> yeah I just I like it's I'm fine with it I I know that people like look social media is there are many issues with the internet with social media with all of these things but there's also I think loads of good things about it which means you can access mm-hmm. what that previously you couldn't have access to and um, like I can find mm. people on Instagram I you know I find so many cool interesting things on instagram like young creatives and people in different parts of the world and and the same on tiktok and i love that and i just i i mean i think i do think about this especially as i get older i'm like oh my god am i like the old lady posting on fucking instagram like a crazy person (laughs) i just i i try not to think about it too much and i try not to believe in it too much i guess like everyone looks like their life is way better than yours on Instagram every and I just try and remember that like Instagram isn't a reflection of anyone's fucking reality um and as I feel like as Mm. long as I remember that um I'm okay to scroll 
a great deal. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm very online. I really love the internet. I love like, <laughs> like I said, I love the walls are getting me access to, but I also love the lols. And I think I'm very grateful that I didn't grow up with it. Um, I mm. think, I think it's a lot harder for people who I wouldn't want my teenage years, my early twenties to be documented on Instagram. So I do really feel for young people. And I do think that, you know, there are infinity things that we can attribute to Instagram, whether it's, you know, the return of thinness to fashion and the importance that is being placed on bodies. And I think we can relate that to a face tune and to Instagram and to whatever celebrities we, we choose to. But equally, like I grew up in the 90s, so everyone was fucking thin then as far as I saw. Mm. Uh, certainly wasn't, you know, there certainly mm-hmm. wasn't, uh, there certainly weren't different types of beauty being celebrated when I was growing up without Instagram. Um, I think that, you know, it's just the modern incarnation of that. And the same with consumerism. You know, I think, I don't, I mean, it, it was the same, I guess, if you picked up a copy of like whatever magazines people were reading when I was 15, it was still telling you to buy a hand. I think we just have to like remember and remind everyone all the time that like Instagram isn't real. It's not. Yeah. And then we're okay. For sure. Then we're okay. Or oh, ish. Okay. Ish. ish. Um, ish. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I switch, off, I switch off at certain points from Instagram. Like I, I think the arena it's most troubling in and the internet is most troubling in is politics. And right. when, um, when there are moments of particular political strife in this world, that's when I switch off from Instagram because I think there is a deep, deep, deep issue with how the internet is, has a vested interest in political instability and we all propagate that. I guess that's switch off. That's your boundary with it all. I, I agree with you in that. I kind of made a decision quite a while ago to not really use Instagram as a political platform, but that obviously I'm still very sort of, um, what's the word? Um, I don't feel totally great about that either. There's no, there doesn't seem like a good, I was like, this is not a platform that's built for like any kind of political yeah. discourse that I feel comfortable engaging in, but equally exactly. it is a, it is a, one of the world's most important platforms now. And like, you know, I don't feel reconciled what I'm trying to say with, with my, the way that I'm using it. But then again, I never have because I'm the kind of person who does overthink it. And that's why I don't really use it much anymore. I, I very much agree with you. And I struggle to work out how to reconcile those things as well. Um, I, yeah, that they're, they're, like none of these platforms, like whether it's, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like whatever, none of them are built to, to encourage like depth of thought. And yeah, uh, and like vigilance of reporting, like none of it's real, mm. and that extends politics mm-hmm. as well. Like how it reflects politics, and I think politics requires like more than a, a screen grab or a I don't know a carousel or, or whatever. And um, misinformation <laughs> bounds on on social media, like and the social media platforms have, again, vested interest in that misinformation and in binaries of opinion and in 
aggressive and combative discourse, which I think is why we the world is in the state it's in in 2024. Um, so yeah, love social media, love the internet for everything apart from politics. <laughs> Yeah, I think also what I was going to say is that, you know, the, the kind of byproduct or like you say, the, the effect of that beyond this sort of weird, insane social polarization that's going on is just the, as you touched on, sort of the uh, what it's actually doing to our brains on a sort of neurological yeah. level, attention span issues, um, inability or unwillingness to sort of engage with anything beyond surface level lack of critical thinking skills, et cetera, et cetera, which is, you know, why I hate being, um, I hate the idea that anyone would think that anything I do is sort of like intellectually self-righteous because it really isn't. For me, it's just like, I have to do these things as a counterbalance to the fact that I also scroll any old shit on my phone for hours a day. Like this is my way of sort of making sure my brain doesn't just melt into a pool. Um, And reading is like, reading is what I, is how I do that. You know, like reading is a big way for me to sort of counterbalance. It's like, I don't know, going for a walk after you eat a donut. Like that's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to balance the brain out. Do you have time to read? Do you read a lot? Like what role does that, it sounds like you were very intellectual in your, in your early adulthood. How does that play out for you now? Um, I feel like I'm really resting on my, on my years of, of, like reading I feel like um I, <laughs> when I, you still had you, the attention span <laughs> exactly before before I'd like completely fucked myself by like cruise talk um I I do read I read long-form journalism more than anything else and I read poetry um I read I find it really hard and I think part of this is an attention span thing I find it really hard to engage mm. in fiction in the same way that I used to except for mm-hmm. when it's like otherworldly fiction so I was thinking about this when you asked me about books and I was thinking about some of my favorite books and some of my favorite books I've read or reread in the past few years and they're all like uh like Jeanette Winterson or Alistair Gray or people who construct alternative realities I guess Mm. and use those as ways of exploring things. I find it really hard to read a book about, uh, like a a fiction book that is rooted in reality. Um, And I really Mm -hmm. like that sort of parallel universe way into things. Um, And I think that's why I like poetry so much as well. Um, I love, for a start, it's short, always a winner. Um, But I love (laughs) that it doesn't make sense in a linear way. And mm-hmm. I find that far, that connects with me far more with where I'm at in my life right mm. now, um, where things don't have to make sense in a linear way. So yeah, when it comes to reading, that's what I'm into. I, I also, I read like, I read a lot of, um, non-fiction like politics stuff what are your sources on non-fiction long you said you read a lot of lo- non-fiction long reads where are yeah. you where are you looking for that kind of stuff i'm all over the place actually like i think it's really important to to read as much of both sides of an argument as possible so i try and just like read as much mm-hmm. as i humanly um i 
I'm a big New Yorker reader. I love the New Yorker. I yeah, shout out me too. Me too. That's journalism. Incredible. Um, Truly. But I, you know, I, 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 I subscribe to, I can afford now to subscribe to a lot of places and people who I like reading. Um, so like the standards, mm. you know, I read the New York Times, I read the Washington Post. I, I, I don't subscribe to the Guardian anymore. Um, I, but I, I, she was like a standard liberal lefty assortment of stuff. Um, and yeah, I find a lot of stuff that I read, I guess, outside of my main sources. I find a lot of it on Twitter and on Reddit. Like I like to read um, things that aren't the things I believe in as much as possible. So I can at least understand mm. where, where certain things are coming from. Yeah. And I read magazines, obviously. Well, well, like I read, you know, I read all my standard magazines, but like fashion stuff. I mean, I I hope that goes without yeah. saying that like I am reading hopefully as much as possible of all of like my peers and contemporaries and you know everything that Kathy Horan is writing. I'm reading. I actually I love the cut. Okay, I literally read everything on the cut. Yeah, I the cut's that, great. I love the cut as I, well. I think Lindsay Peoples Wanger is just doing such a fab job and. Um, again, there's really great journalism there. Um, yeah, yeah, I think she's my... managed to really strike a great a great balance with, you know, you're going to find political content there, but it doesn't. Sometimes I feel like platforms, fashion platforms, they try to, they feel the pressure to, become, you know, have a political standpoint because they know it's important to younger readers particularly, but it just feels yeah. very, I was just like very poorly put together. Whereas in the cut, I think yes. it, they've done a great job of making it feel very... Um, What's the word? Coherent, cohesive. I agree. I agree. I think they do a great job. And um, I, I'm really into, I'm also really still into Teen Vogue. I'm really into them. Um, what am I into? Are you going to tell me about your self, your self-help books? <laughs> Any self-help? Yes. I mean, I read. We can cut it out. I like I self-help do. books as well, though, and that's why I'm so interested in, like, I read, I think, like, I mean, obviously, I'm going to say no shame, but I am slightly ashamed and sometimes I buy them on my Kindle, so I don't have to have them on my bookshelf. But oh, I keep, no, I keep them. Like, I lo- All mine are like, you I hide have, like, them. Self- <laughs> yeah. I always saw them coming to my house and see, like, what, what therapeutic issues i'm working through i'm terrified yeah <laughs> but okay but are there any are there any that you would be willing to divulge because as i said i'm a big fan of self-help books as well i don't read any like business or like like work related self-help but like i'm into my spiritual journey i think they tend to be better when they're actually written by someone with some kind of spiritual um grounding like i'm trying to not buy books by insane podcaster like yeah. scammers anymore yeah. i love tara brack she's probably her yes. books are, i don't know if you'd even class that as self-help but because yes. i'd say that's spiritual wisdom more yes. so but her book yes. radical self-acceptance 100 made a big impact on me a wonderful book and uh, Gabor Mate, I think, is really wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah, I love like I I love a spiritual self help vibe very much. Yeah, and this book is the best book ever, which was I can't uh, see the cover it. clearly. Sorry, no, uh, which is 
I took off the bedside table, which is uh, Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Juno Mack and Molly Smith, which is an amazing primer into the intricacies of the decriminalization movement of sex work globally and mm. why why and how it should be decriminalized in the way that Juno and Molly believe it should be, which is the same way that I believe it should be. And um, this is something that I give to everyone because I think the conversation around sex work and decriminalization is obviously something that has started to come into the mainstream more as it rightly should. Mm. And um but I think like politically and practically it's quite a nuanced conversation in terms of what sex workers and uh Juno is a uh, a friend of mine who is a set or a woman I know who is a, a sex worker and I think it's really important to obviously prioritize their perspectives. Um, and mm-hmm. this explains why sex workers often collectively feel that the way the way that they do and the reasonings behind that on a global scale. And so I really super recommend that to people. Well, that's a great recommendation because that's not something I think you'd necessarily pick up off a book, sh- you know, in a bookstore unless you already had a pre-existing, you know, um, interest exactly. or understanding of that world, but it, but it is, as you say, a really important issue. See, you're still, you're still the intellectual twenty year old who moved to the, to the left bank. <laughs> still I, got it. Instagram hasn't rotted your brain completely. <laughs> what was the other question you asked me? I was meant to bring two books. Oh, a book that had impacted me recently. I reread Kathy Acker. That's what I thought. I reread uh, Blood and Guts. Right in high school, reminded me of my like furious self which was really nice to be reminded of and the beauty of female rage I thought which I think you get Mm. I thought was really great and when I was I was at the fashion awards in December and I had a really the best table ever and um I was sat with Michaela Cole, who collected an award for something, I don't know, being fab. And it really reminded me of the importance of female rage in making things change. And I think that as I've gotten Mm. older, obviously, there's that thing, right? Like everyone's super liberal when they're young, and then everyone becomes a conservative as they get old. And I'm Mm. like, Jesus. Um, But I think I can really easily lose my anger against inequality. And when I saw Michaela get up and do her speech about the importance of, I don't think, about a speech that I heard as a reflection on the importance of being angry enough to like do things. Um, It made me reread some Kathy Acker and that made me feel angry enough to be mobilized to make change in the way that I can in the world. Um, because I think that's what, what she did so remarkably with, with her shows and with her writing. Yeah. I mean, I think the application of female or any, or human rage and indignance is probably the scariest thing about our culture. We've just been pacified into sort of just going, okay, 
Right, um, right. Which is and another I, thing that not to go back onto Instagram, but I think that's another reason why I'm more aware of it now because it I, it makes me um, passive. It makes me passive yeah. because it forces me to not forces me, but it, it encourages me to process an influence opposed in the same you know, brainwave as a, a child of a, a picture of a child dying in, in Gaza. And I, I don't want those two things to sit side by side in my brain because then they start to feel kind of like the same thing ish, or I can't, my brain can't distinguish between them. So I think 100%. yes to rage and yes, yes to art and books that, that remind you to stay in touch with it. Cause it's primal and it's important. And like, yes. you know, and I think that's yeah. the amazing thing about Kathy Acker is that like absolute primality of the way that she, the way that she writes and how, mm. yeah, the, the immediate response that that can provoke, I think is really powerful. And I think that, yeah, I think going into 2024, which I think is going to be a savage year politically, um, we mm. all have remain angry and mobilized and it's interesting because obviously it's interesting to figure like how my job works with that but um i think yeah being angry and mobilized is very much the 2024 mantra so well so you do have a resolution <laughs> you do it's have a like, new year's resolution stay angry um, and mobilized <laughs> <laughs>